Hey, I'm Hoxley Wilson, and welcome to showbizmonkeys.com. Around this town, I'm alright. Around this town, I'm alright. I mean, no consequence when you're playing with the fire. Move to the left, man. How is Montreal? Oh, Montreal, I mean, we have a shitty, crazy wind and rain day, uh, but uh, other than that, it's a wonderful city to live in. Um, my wife and I were in Jean Talon Market the other day, and she said, I think I like Montreal better than Paris. And so I guess that's where we're at right now. <laughs> that's a good place to be. Yeah, so it's a pretty strong endorsement, I think. I mean, admittedly, Paris is getting grindier and grindier every time I go back, but it's still a city that I love. It's just maybe not as gentle a city as it was when I first started going to Paris back 20 years ago. Um, you just went back uh, to Europe recently for a little bit of a tour. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, you know, so I was I was kind of famous in parts of Europe um, going back, I don't know, 15, between 15 and 20 years ago. And in France in particular, I had a hit song and I played a lot of very, very big shows. And, you know, when the bottom dropped out of my major label career or the major label part of my career, I was nervous to return to Europe um, for fear that everybody would have forgotten who I was. And so through my 30s, I kind of avoided Europe. Um, and then now that I'm a little bit older, I don't really... I don't have to sort of, I don't know, watch out for my ego maybe as much as I did when I was younger. So we started to go back to Europe last year and we dipped our toe in a few places where traditionally I'd always done well. And <clears throat> as it turned out, like we were selling out shows fairly easily. So, you know, I was in the south of France this time. I hadn't played the south of France for 17 years. Okay. <laughs> Um, and the promoter was like, yeah, we could have sold the show at three times. And it, part of it is that I, I play with David Bowie in the South of France. So everybody kind of remembers that. And, and so there's a lot of kind of crazy stuff. Um, the European tours, you know, we've sort of br brought them back into our lives to, so that we can kind of maybe go to Europe every fall, um, bounce around. We were in Norway uh, this time, in the UK and France, uh, and Ireland again. I hadn't played—excuse me—I hadn't played Ireland in like 15 years. So, also a wonderful show. Wonderful to be back there. So, I think I'm just in a different place as a person, where um, I'm maybe happier, although that's debatable some days. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then I think I'm just more interested in my work as an artist, which is a word I really, really am careful not to use or overuse. But these days I feel like an artist. And the other funny thing in Europe was that so all this time has passed and people were coming up to me after and like, oh, it's great. Oh, it's so great or whatever. And I think that's, you know, I mean, without trying, without... <laughs> hoping not to sound too much like an old man, but like, <laughs> as I sort of feel like music is homogenizing in large part, I think, thanks to, you know, streaming and what have you. I don't, I don't know if, 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 if we're hearing 
sort of as broad a diversity. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but what I sort of felt, whatever, what I felt this time was that, like, I really haven't changed in 20 plus years of doing this. But I think because it maybe maybe popular music is just not quite as interesting as it was. And it makes me sort of seem maybe a little bit more interesting, even though I'm not really not doing anything any different. <laughs> I sort of feel like just by virtue of the fact that I've survived all these years and that I'm still doing it and that there's still an audience that somehow I didn't have to change necessarily to feel like I was still, I was still, I still had a, a, a relevant artistic goal. You know, I feel like that the world has changed a little bit more and it's all of a sudden had, I, I've had no choice but to refocus what it is I'm doing based on sort of the changing atmosphere of culture in Canada and the rest of the world. Uh, do you do you think people, uh, partly because of the way the music industry has changed and all of that, that people also are more, I guess they always have been, but even more so these days, like interested in that live show and that live experience because so much of our lives are digital and communicating that way and listening to music and watching music that way that people really gravitate towards that like interesting live experience? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I, I think... I'm just starting to understand what the live experience means. Like, you know, I've kind of gone through my own evolution with it. it. When I was young and had all this money behind me and was on TV and was, you know, kind of on the road to becoming famous, I kind of was under the impression based on like the fact that I was believing my own hype that like, you know, people were at these shows cause I was really great. And then, and now I don't know why the fuck people are at shows. Cause like, <laughs> Cause it's a pain in the ass to leave your house, you know, like, and it's generally speaking, like it's, it's uncomfortable to go to shows like, uh, I, and so when I look out at the audience now, I'm like, I don't understand why anybody came. Like, I mean, I'm grateful and I, and I do think I am good at my job and I'm, you know, I bring in a, a sort of a unique voice to the, to the stage, but you know, I went to see one of my heroes or two of my heroes last night at Place des Arts here in, in Montreal Chick Corea, whose drummer, Brian Blade, I'm also a, a massive fan of. And so here we are in this sort of beautiful, big theater. It's definitely a full house. And I was really meditating on this idea that, you know, that there's, a, you know, 1,200 people or 1,400 people in Montreal that when when Chick Corea comes to town, a guy who's been really on the vanguard of sort of popular jazz music for decades, Mm-hmm. That the whole that the city does, it, they put it in, the, they mark it in their calendars, and then they come out in numbers because Chick Corea is in town for one night, and 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 that one night was last night, and it's not going to be tonight. And I don't know why that struck me so much last night when I was coming home in my cab from the show. I was like, it's so heavy that in a way I'm more interested. Like I wanted to be in the same room as Chick Corea and Brian Blade. Like I just wanted to have a shared energy with these people because that's all they really are. But, but they're so extraordinary and so remarkable and they've had such an astounding effect on my life that the one part of it was listening to the music and being involved in the concert. And I admittedly, I've seen Chick Corea a lot of times and I didn't necessarily connect with him last night. Like I was hoping I've seen Brian Blade a lot of times. And the last time he was in Montreal playing, um, at the Montreal Jazz Fest with his own band, The Fellowship. Like, it was arguably one of the greatest live music experiences of my life. So it, it, we were up against a lot to try and match that. But 
but the biggest part for me was I didn't leave the concert feeling disappointed that for whatever reason, I didn't find a window in on the repertoire last night. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I was grateful to be in the presence of these astounding humans, you know, that have kind of, they took their own path. And uh, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, just that I, I'm in it because this is how I make a living. And I also don't understand what gets people out of the house and away from watching succession <laughs> to come out to see my show, you know, like, and, but, but maybe if I'm to, to sort of like, look through my own lens. This is why I go to shows now. And I'm more interested in live music now than ever, because I think people who step out of the pathway of status quo, it's getting harder and harder and harder. I think to have your own belief system, stand up for your own belief system and stay committed to your own belief system. And I'm not, I don't mean that you need to have rigid beliefs that you stay committed to for the rest of your life. I think, you know, I think really bright people, their opinions are always changing, but, or some of their opinions are always changing, but I definitely have this sense that I'm interested in music because I'm interested in rebellious people, um, and courageous people and brilliant people. And and I'm kind of interested in investing my energy in being around that and in putting my money into that again, because it feels like the world doesn't value that kind of radical brilliance like it did only a short time ago you know mm-hmm. well how do you uh, i guess manage the fact you mentioned earlier like that ego you had before with europe and things like that how do you manage that with the fact that there are probably a lot of people coming to hoxley workman shows looking for that same kind of thing you're looking for from chick Corea and brian blade yeah well you know i have I'm in a really lucky position and you know, I did put myself out there all those years ago and thought that my voice was singular and unique enough that it deserved to be on a record and that I wanted people to hear it. And I think now I, I still feel like I still have that sense in me that what I'm doing, I want people to hear. And I'll even go so far as to say that I think what I'm doing has some importance and sometimes I feel like what I really do for a living or at least what my shows are really about is just exhibiting a certain unfettered freedom in that 90 minutes to two hours on stage where we don't have to play by the ever evolving and more restrictive kind of set of principles and rules that seem to be, they seem to be getting applied to life in ways that, um, border on, border on unreasonable. I just, life doesn't really look the same to me as it did only a short time ago. And if I can kind of, if I can kind of fulfill anything, it's that, and, and then maybe I did this too with my play. I'm interested in, in reckless abandon and not reckless, even in the old style rock and roll, like reckless drug and alcohol abandon, more like reckless abandon where the spirit is permitted to leave the house for the night and kind of intertwine with its wildness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it, it seems harder and harder to be a human now. And there's a great, uh, maybe too, because we've been going through this Canadian election and sort of the, the minutia of human indecencies is right up close. And so, you know, there's a, there's a din of 
of all kinds of fibbery. And I mean, it's just a bizarre time to kind of be awake and watching television or, or watching the Twitter or the internet or whatever. I think that if anything, and even last night watching Chip Korea and Brian Blade and Christian McBride, evidently, who's got astounding intonation, my God. Um, I think that this, if anything, it was a welcome break from the insanity that is being served up to us today as real life. You know, I, I sort of feel, and I know everybody is acquainted with the idea of the 24 hour news cycle, you know, having been not necessarily the healthiest addition to our <laughs> cultural landscape, but like, there's an insanity to it that I feel like is contributing something dark to the overall disposition of humans. And I don't really know how to reconcile that. Well, I guess part of the way you're doing it is putting music into the world, putting that you said you're an art, you do consider yourself an artist with a hesitancy to use that word. Yeah. And you're just, you're putting music out there. And I think your, your last album spoke to a lot of what's going on in the world now, but through this lens of the eighties in a way, and like growing up in Canada 30, 40 years ago. Um, and then you've got a new album you're already uh, working on and finishing up right now. Uh, can you talk about maybe how those two projects are, are doing that are looking at where things are now, but also reflecting on the past? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm geeked that you know that there's a new record because I'm uh, so when I had was finished uh, meeting age wasteland, I still had some gas in the tank. And so I went into the studio with a friend of mine who's also a very, very talented character. He's, you know, done a lot of interesting things. And his name's Marcus Popkin and he's, he's, yeah, he's worked, he's worked on a lot of in, very amazing records. Anyway, I, he and I kind of, wrote a record or the bulk of a record quite quickly together. And there is some carryover in some of the sentiments. And there is that there is some, in some part, a continuation of that sentimentality um, that, that was on meeting age wasteland. But I kind of thought with meeting age wasteland, I had made a, 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 an almost commitment to myself, but even more an almost commitment to the people who work with me who have to deal with the fact that I never put the same record out twice, that basically I always make their life difficult by not following the rules, not ever doing something, you know, like really it pays in, in the music business to keep putting out the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to get, if you want to get popular, it pays to continue to just put out one thing and don't change the program. And it's just not how I operate. And I know that I disappoint the people who like my music sometimes. I know I've disappointed myself. I just, I can't have unreleased music just sitting on a hard drive. It makes me crazy. <laughs> so, so anyways, I thought I was going to just commit to being a singer songwriter guy, acoustic guitar, good lyrics and, and vocals up front. And I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm over trying to do, you know, I'm just going to commit to being this one thing. And then of course, this new record is very pop and it's very kind of more produced and it's very much, there's a lot more electronics and it's like, I, you know, I went and did the thing I said I wasn't going to do, but <laughs> that is very typical of me, but there is some lyrical carryover because I was really, really in the same headspace for this new record as I was for, and I mean, 
there's a song about acid rain. There's a song about the Canada arm. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm kind of, <laughs> I still am dipping back into that eighties. Like for me now, when environmentalism got it sort of was launched in a way into the popular consciousness when I was a kid in the eighties, acid rain was what we were battling. And it seems like there's, there's kind of been an evolving character study on, on our relationship to the environment since the eighties. And, and when we were being brought up in the eighties, we were being brought up as very conscientious stewards of the planet. This was always, this was already very much in the collective consciousness. And I think that the eighties, I look back and it's such a blessed time. I mean, everybody's going to reflect back on the music of their childhood and say it was the most important music that the world ever heard. But I, I think that the sixties was important. I think that the eighties was the last time you heard truly courageous songwriting on the radio. I think it's the last time you heard really head turning, really creative, really, um, really thoughtful pop music. I, you know, it's when I think back to like, it's, you know, aha's take on me or come on Eileen or, anything by the Smiths, like you really start to go through the eighties and the, the level of songwriting and just the general kind of, um, the hubris that not hubris, that's because there's so much negative connotation. On that. The, the, just that they had the, 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 the belief in self and that the culture was still willing to absorb very intricate, popular musical offerings. And I just don't know if we've got the same ear anymore for it. Again, I'm sounding ridiculously old and out of touch. <laughs> and, you know, I, and definitely in, in, in hip-hop and other urban music, like, production is still something that is evolving. Like, there are still remarkable things happening on the radio, but I don't know if songwriting is really happening on the radio. Right. Well, and, and if they're happening, if these interesting things are happening there, yeah, they're happening off the radio. They're happening in, you know, small clubs and that kind of thing. That's that's right. It must be happening somewhere. It's not visible to me. Um, there's not even guitars with the radio anymore. I guess unless, of course, you're listening to country, new country radio. It's the last place where you're going to hear guitars. And like, I don't know. Like, I'm fine with the guitar sort of being jettisoned. Um, I'm fine with you know culture and fashion changing, but I still need there to be a sort of a, a central brilliance to keep me interested. If that sort of central brilliance, if the thing that is sort of driving it doesn't come from, and I mean, I love Drake and I'm a Jay-Z fanatic. And like, there are parts of modern music that I am absolutely in love with. For me, it's the songwriting part. I was, who was I even hearing the other day? Something semi-naff, like Hall and Oates or something. I was in a restaurant and I was like, man, the thing is, is that, there was complicated chord mathematics in that older music. And it doesn't go back that far. And the population just had an ear to absorb it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I know that in hindsight, it might not be cool, whatever cool is supposed to be. But it, there was a time when I think just the, the broad vocabulary and understanding for music was just that little bit more um, fully realized within my lifetime, which is why I think I keep going back to the eighties because it was an incredible time because we were told it was the future where we were living, you know, like the music had synthesizers and there was a sense like, 
you know, all of a sudden we had the Astrodome and AstroTurf and this idea that we were astro-sizing ourselves and we were suddenly becoming that much more futuristic, only to turn around a handful of decades later, we, we stumble into this internet age and the digital age, and it made the futurism of the 80s look utterly ridiculous. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, the 1980s, the early 1980s, looked more like the late 1960s than they do right now, you know? So I think that there's an interesting feeling when I think about the music that I loved in the, in the early 80s, in particular Michael Jackson. It gets me thinking about all the other music in the early 80s that came from the, from the 1960s, like Steve Winwood and ZZ Top and Aretha Franklin. And I'm sure there's more, just, uh, those are off the top of my head. These things were still on TV. This was still the 1960s was still had was in large part informing the 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 cultural energy of the of the early 1980s. You know, mm -hmm. that's my perception. Anyways, I'm sure that there's smart people would say that's totally ridiculous <laughs> and that's absolutely untrue. Uh, you're a, you're a smart person too, though, so your your voice <laughs> needs to be part of that. <laughs> um, I want to just before we're done talking about the the new album coming out, I just want to touch on. I I realized going through Twitter that uh, I believe you settled on the name Less Rage, More Tears for it, and why that struck me is because uh, at Folk Fest, Winnipeg Folk Festival this summer, that was probably one of the highlight moments for me was when you in between songs just not talking about that as an album title, just talking about that as a life philosophy really uh, resonated, I think, with me and a lot of people in the crowd. Why is that such an important thought for you these days, this less rage, more tears? Yeah, well, I inherited rage a little bit because there's it, it runs in my family. And so, you know, I was the generation, I think, that I was determined to sort of correct some of this this strange relationship with the world and other people. And, you know, each generation, I think, tries to improve itself if they're, if they're conscious enough uh, as much as they can, but I think they only get a, a little ways. And what I noticed, you know, when my dad got into his midlife, his, his rage sort of dwindled off and he started to cry at absolutely everything. And that's what's happening to me. I'm 44. And even though I, can carry a lot of loathsome feelings about how the world operates and some of the sociopathic people that that run the show. I am more consumed by the tears I have for simple beauty and sadness that pass by me these days. I read a play a couple of days ago with my wife and I wept the whole time, you know, like uh, it's just, I don't have an interest to kind of carry that young, um, hot energy into the future. And I don't believe it's really all that, it's all that conducive to discussion or human evolution. So yeah, less rage, more tears. It's kind of my new reality. And frankly, I think I'm buying it. I think I'm in. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's a good, maybe now more than ever, uh, just with the state of the world, it's a a good message and ideology to just get out there to people. It's possible. I know that when I floated it um, on when I did put it out on Twitter, I noticed there was a couple of people respond that they figured that we actually live in a time that requires more rage. And I think that I'm just not necessarily 
quite willing to dedicate myself to rage at this moment when it is so fashionable and there seems to be so many things to rage against. I guess I often think about gentleness and love and I'm not good at any of that stuff, mm-hmm. but I do, I do know that the, the, historically the people that fight for peace ha- have had peace and love in their core. And I'm, you know, of course, talking about the names that we all know, the Jesus Christ, the Martin Luther King, the Gandhis, these, these figures who, who kept nonviolence and rage out of their discussion, you know? And I feel like there's something to it, even though it's very persuasive to get on Twitter and to put your rage out there so that you can be involved in the discussion. But I'm really backing away from that these days. I just don't... I mean, I tend to be nervous to get involved with anything that's popular anyways, because when it, when things are popular, I get suspicious, and I always kind of have, ever since I was a kid. Um, and it's even as I sort of going back to the early part of our discussion about going to Europe and stuff, like, I think I thought I was going to be famous when I was young, and then when I didn't really become famous, I really feel very comfortable with the fact that there's a value to not being popular. And I think that I'm popular enough that I get to make a good living. And I'm so, so very grateful for that, but I'm not popular enough where I need to compromise what I do. Mm -hmm. Like I watched what's happened with the NBA in China this last couple of weeks. And it's like, when you were popular, NBA popular, and you're trying to get more rich and more popular by being in a foreign country and selling your product in a foreign country that you can't, that you have to tailor your thoughts and your speech in order to kind of keep growing the popularity of something. This is why I'm innately distrustful of things that are popular. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm quite interested in the fact that my music isn't popular at that level. Um, It means that I get to populate the inside of what I do with, I think, a little more authenticity. Um, I think being popular is a disease. And frankly, when I backed away from being famous all those years ago, I I kind of made a a mental note that fame is a disease, and I think that I think that seeking fame is is quite odd. It's a it's quite an odd thing to want in your life because I think fundamentally it's a, it's a it's a destructive it's a it's a destructive additive. Well, and it seems like something that more people, I guess, because it's more accessible to get there that more people are seemingly craving is this fame because they can do it overnight in a way that has never been done before. Totally. And that's potentially scary. I, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, we are in a, a likes and favorites culture and a cancel culture. And this fame thing has never felt more fleeting and I think that if you believe that Andy Warhol, you know, the Andy Warhol thing, everybody gets to be famous for 15 minutes. I think that the, that the potential for that to be the case has never been greater, but I don't know if it's a full 15 minutes anymore. I think that, you know, I think in today's money, it's probably more like a minute and a half and you mm-hmm. can become famous and then infamous within a heartbeat. And I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm really pulling, I'm pulling out my investment I think in in many parts in 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 some of these aspects of the culture as they stand right now, just because of how destructive they've been in my life. 
since they're sort of, since they've been in my life for like 10 or 15 years. And I'm not seeing the, the, the huge benefit, to be completely honest. Um, well, what better segue into uh, touring across Canada and selling tickets than, uh, <laughs> than that topic? But I do want to talk about your tour before we, uh, we get going here, because you are going across Canada through pretty much all of November and the little bit of December in, uh, here in Winnipeg and Montreal. Yep. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, the idea of going across Canada in what is, for most of Canada, a pretty dreary month of November heading towards the winter? Uh, and what you're expecting from this tour that kicks off November 1st. Well, I can tell you, I have, I've got the most boring personal goals for this tour I've ever had (laughs) for any tour in my life, which is I want to stay healthy and spiritually and mentally balanced the whole time. I haven't done a tour this long in a while, and I'm very interested to connect in as authentic a way as I possibly can. And, you know, as far as what I've kind of already said, like, I think it's a miracle that these people are coming to my shows and I, I I can't stress enough how grateful and affirming it is for me to think that I can still do this thing because I, I lose hope a lot in, in culture and I lose hope a lot in humans and, uh, and which is a sort of a downfall in my character. But I feel like, this is kind of a way for me to have those moments like I had with Chick Corea and Brian Blade last night where there is a shared energy. The, the mere fact that there's a community created around the music I've written over all these years, the mere fact that Winnipeg can be sold out and there'll be some hundreds of people all together effectively having been, having been moved by the things I've written, which, you know, it's, it's a miracle. And, and I think that as we seek to create more divisions with ourselves, the idea that everybody is in this same room for one, for the same reason, to me is like a, it's like it, it borders on like a, a, a counterculture experiment. You know, nowadays mm-hmm. division and individuality is the name of the game and coming together as a community, especially that we're now so secularized that we don't do that at church anymore. You know, that we don't have these outlets where we, where we gather to sing or we gather to share music or we gather for a single spiritual purpose. I think in a way, this is kind of what I'm hoping to have, is to have this warmth and this human understanding at, at, at these shows, which I know sounds sort of ridiculous. Like I could just say, I just want to rock, but um, I kind of, I will be rocking as well. The band is really fucking hot right now and we're really in a mode of loving music. So that's kind of where we're at. I mean, Winnipeg's going to, you're going to, it's going to be a funny one because we'll be singularly like so hot just in terms of all the shows we will have played, but there will be an exhaustion, but there will also be this crazy, crazy like excitement to kind of get on a plane and head to Montreal and close the whole thing down. It's going to be a nice night. I'm struck by you. You're mentioning like church and how people used to, you know, get that experience from church just because uh, I run a weekly open mic that's like music and poetry and uh, anything goes kind of thing. And over the last year or so, I've come to realize for me that it is, it it does have that church, I don't know, church feeling to it Mm -hmm. where, you know, a bunch of people come together once a week and we sing and we listen and we just come together as a community and commiserate and all that. And uh, yeah, I think that art can be that if you give it space to do that. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I believe that's true. And, you know, I think I went through, I was a very pious early 20, late teens, early 20 something kid. And I had an experience in Los Angeles in my late 20s where I always say to people, or not people, but the people who know me, that I, I left LA on a plane feeling godless. And I felt godless for a while. And I sort of decided I would sort of pick up a, an atheism or a godlessness or whatever and try to apply an intellectual understanding of life where, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we're alive now and then it all goes away. And then the only thing that ever threw any of that into question was that music always moved me, it moves myself, it moves people in rooms. And every time I want to commit to this idea that, you know, humans return to dust and our souls disappear and, you know, it, it, that this thing is temporary. Uh, music really is the thing that keeps pulling down the, the curtains on that one for me. And I still feel that I'm reminded of that there's something holy and precious and holy and precious about humans and the connection that we can create with one another. And it's always music that reveals that to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's always music that reminds me that, man, this shit is powerful and people are powerful and the human spirit is powerful. And even though there seems to be a lot stacking up against those beliefs, the thing that keeps, you know, shutting down the argument is, is the song and the voice and the rhythm and the truth, you know? Oh, absolutely. I, I feel it most days, thankfully. Awesome. The final thing I want to get to before uh, letting you go is, because I haven't heard you talk much in interviews about uh, this relationship, but I'm, I've been so fascinated with it over the years, is your relationship with Mr. Lonely. Oh, yeah. I think I've only seen you perform once without him, and I've seen you uh, perform, you know, a dozen times with him, so he's he's always there at your side. And can you talk a little bit about that long-lasting relationship with, with Todd and that whole, yeah. uh, the music journey? Well, it's it's so big now, and I, I, I'm afraid I think I took it for granted for some years there, and it's more important to me now than ever. Um, his brilliance is more obvious to me now than ever. Toddy is a, is a very special human just to begin with. Like if you didn't hear him play the piano, he's already one of the smartest people, you know, um, his side hustle is, is that he's uh, an extraordinary computer programmer. So when you think of backstage, and you think there must be something fun going on back there. I can tell you that Lonely has his laptop out and he's writing code all the time. <laughs> um, he's also a lover of fine things, and he's a he's an honestly he's such a decent, thoughtful human. And the discussion we're having, the gist of it, you know, I have with Lonely all the time. He's somebody who's evaluating his place in the world and being conscientious. I think when I was young, you know, we played our first show without a rehearsal and all of a sudden we were touring the world and we were living on the road constantly. And when I say I took them for granted, it's that I didn't have to fuck around with shitty musicians. In fact, all my band are pretty much, you know, I've had them in my life for so long that I forget that, that there's opportunity, there's other musicians out there that wouldn't either gel with me or wouldn't like to play with me. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so the thing with Toddy is that like, 
um, there were some years where we would get on planes together and it's like, well, yeah, we're doing the thing we've done forever. But in the last few years, and again, I think it has something connected to the less rage, more tears aspect of life where just with some aging and some changes in hormones and some changes in perspective, I look at what Toddy does and what we do together as something really, really remarkable. And uh, I'm so, so proud uh, that he and I get to kind of have this relationship and that it is, it's, yeah, it's, it's really big. It's, it's bigger than I can even probably quite crystallize with words at the moment. Uh, he means more to me now than ever. And really it's, I will say this, that, um, he's, he, you know, obviously through all these years, people have noticed lonely. So he gets, he's got more gigs now than, than he did some years ago. So sometimes I don't, I don't get to call lonely up and say there's a tour and he's just, he's just available. You know, <laughs> he becomes essential to whatever group he plays in instantly. And so there was a tour where I didn't have him and I, I auditioned a handful of Toronto piano players and they were all fine. Like they were all just fine. But that day, that audition day, it fucking spun my head around because the people who were auditioning just did not in any way encapsulate the intensity, the understanding, just the general nuanced thing that he does. And to be honest with you, it fucking scared me. <laughs> it scared me that somebody couldn't just walk in and take over from him. And it hit me hard just how special the thing is that he does. And I know I'm a pain in the ass to play with because I mean, I was a pain in the ass for a lot of years because I was such a, so negative and so loathsome of the world and loathsome of myself. And so, you know, in addition to the fact that I never play a song the same twice, and in addition <laughs> to the fact that I can never bank on what I'm going to do or, you know, there's this, the offstage part is that I have a dark thing that I carry around and he's got to be a part of that, you know, because he is so close to me. And so there's been years where I'm like, fuck, man, like, I really wish I hadn't sort of polluted the atmosphere with my dreary disposition some days because what was really happening was probably not as dark as I thought at all. And, you know, those go back to even the, the big disappointments in the music career stuff and, you know, leaving Universal Records and all these things where there was years of darkness. And I just don't really, I mean, I have my darkness still, but it, it hitches to different things. It hitches to far different things than it used to. But certainly Lonely has seen me at my absolute best and absolute worst. Well, that's a, that's a person to have, have on board with you. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of person you want with you on tour and and in your life yeah i'm i'm pretty lucky showbizmonkeys.com so this was this all right